Chapter 4 of Rip Foster Rides the Gray Planet by Harold Goodwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rip Foster Rides the Gray Planet. Chapter 4 First, find the needle. Rip walked into the squad room with a copy of the orders in his hand. After one look at his face, the planeteers clustered around him. Santos woke those who were sleeping while Rip waited. "'We have our orders, men,' he announced. Suddenly he laughed. He couldn't help it. At first he had been completely overcome by the responsibility and the magnitude of the job, but now he was getting used to the idea and he could see the adventure in it. Ten wild planeteers riding an asteroid! Sunny space! What a great big thermonuclear stunt!' Koa remarked, "'It must be good. The lieutenant is getting a real atomic charge out of it.' "'Sit down,' Rip ordered. "'You'd better, because you might fall over when you hear this. Listen, men, two days ago the freighter Altair passed through the asteroid belt on a run from Jupiter to Mars.' He sat down, too, because deceleration was starting. As his men looked at each other in surprise at the quickness of it, he continued. The old bucket found something we need, an asteroid of pure thorium. The enlisted planeteers knew as well as he what that meant. There were whistles of astonishment. Koa slapped his thigh. By Gemini, what do we do about it, sir? We capture it, Rip said. We blast it loose from its orbit and ride it back to Earth. He sat back and watched their reactions. At first they were stunned. Trudeau, the Frenchman, muttered to himself in French. Domenico, the Italian, held up his hands and exclaimed, "'Santa Maria!' Kemp, one of the American privates, asked, "'How do we do it, sir?' Rip grinned. "'That's a good question. I don't know.' That stopped them. They stared at him. He added quickly, "'Supplies came aboard at Marsport. We'll get the clue when we open them. Headquarters must have known the method when they assigned us and ordered the equipment." Koa stood up. He was the only one who could have moved upright against the terrific deceleration. He walked to a rack at one side of the squad room and took down a copy of The Space Navigator. Then, resuming his seat, he looked questioningly at Rip. "'Anything else, sir? I thought I'd read what there is about asteroids.' "'Go ahead,' Rip agreed. He sat back as Koa began to recite what data there was, but he didn't listen. His mind was going ten astro-units a second. He thought he knew why he had been chosen for the job. Word of the priceless asteroid must have reached headquarters only a short time before he was scheduled to leave the space platform. He could imagine the speed with which the specialists at Terra Base had acted. They had sent orders instantly to the fastest cruiser in the area, the Scorpius, to stand by for further instructions. Then their personnel machines must have whirred rapidly, electronic brains searching for the nearest available planeteer officer with an astrophysics specialty and astrogation training. He could imagine the reactions when the machine turned up the name of a brand new lieutenant. But the choice was logical enough. He knew that most, if not all, of the planeteer astrophysicists were in either high or low space on special work. Chances were there was no astrophysicist nearer than Ganymede, so the choice had fallen to him.
he had a mental image of the Terra Bay scientists feeding data into the electronic brain, taking the results and writing fast orders for the men and supplies needed. If his estimate was correct, work at the Planeteer base had been finished within an hour of the time word was received. When they opened the cases brought aboard by the Martians, he would see that the method of blasting the asteroid into a course for Earth was all figured out for him. Rip was anxious to get at those cases. Not until he saw the method of operation could he begin to figure his course. But there was no possibility of getting at the stuff until Brennschluss. He put the problem out of his mind and concentrated on what his men were saying. And he slugged into the asteroid going close to seven AUs, Santos was saying. The little Filipino corporal shrugged expressively. Rip recognized the story. It was about a supply ship, a chemical drive rocket job that had blasted into an asteroid a few years before. Private Doust shrugged too. Too bad. High Vac was waiting for him. Nothing you could do when old man nothing wants you. Rip listened, interested. This was the talk of old space hands, who had given the high vacuum of empty space a personality, calling it High Vac or Old Man Nothing. With understandable fatalism, they believed, or said they believed, that when High Vacuum really wanted you, there was nothing you could do. Rip had come across an interesting bit of word knowledge. Spacemen and planeteers alike had a way of using the phrase by Gemini. Gemini, of course, was the constellation of the twins, Castor and Pollux. Both were useful stars for astrogation. The Roman horse soldiers of ancient history had sworn by Gemini or by the twins. The Romans believed the stars were the famous Greek warriors Castor and Pollux, placed in the heavens after their deaths. In later years, the phrase degenerated to the simple by Gemini, and its meaning had been lost. Now, although few spacemen knew the history of the phrase, they were using it again correctly. Other space talk grew out of space itself, not out of history. For instance, the worst thing that could happen to a man was to have his helmet broken. Let the transparent globe be shattered, and the results were both quick and final. Hence the oft-heard threat, I'll bust your bubble. Speaking of bubbles, Rip realized suddenly that he and his men would have to live in bubbles and spacesuits while on the asteroid. None of the minor planets were big enough to have an atmosphere or much gravity. If only he could get a look into those cases! But the ship was still decelerating and he would have to wait. He put his head against the chair rest and settled down to wait as patiently as he could. Brenschluss was a long time coming. When the deceleration finally stopped, Rip didn't wait for gravity. He hauled himself out of the chair and the squad room and went down the corridor hand over hand. He headed straight for where the supplies were stacked, his planeteers close behind him. Commander O'Brien arrived at the same time. "'We're starting to scan for the asteroid,' he greeted Rip. "'Maybe some time before we find it.' "'Where are we, sir?' Rip asked. "'Just above the asteroid belt, near the outer edge.' We're beyond the position where the asteroid was sighted, moving along what the Altair figured as its orbit. I'm not stretching space, Foster, when I tell you we're hunting for a needle in a junk pile. This part of space is filled with more objects than you would imagine, 
and they all register on the red screens. We'll find it, Rip said confidently. O'Brien nodded. Yes, but it probably will take some hunting. Meanwhile, let's get at those cases. The supply clerk is on his way. The supply clerk arrived, issued tools to the planeteers, then opened a plastic case attached to one of the boxes and produced lists. As the planeteers opened and unpacked the crates, Rip and O'Brien inspected, and the clerk checked off the items. The first case produced a complete chemical cutting unit, with an assortment of cutting tips and adapters. Rip looked around for the gas cylinders and saw none. "'Something's wrong,' he objected. "'Where's the fuel supply for the torch?' The supply clerk inspected the lists, shuffled papers, and found the answer. "'The following,' he read, "'are to be supplied from the Scorpius complement. One landing boat, large, model 28. Eight each, oxygen cutting unit gas bottles. Four each, chemical cutting unit fuel tanks.' "'That's that,' Rip said, relieved. Apparently, he was supposed to do a lot of cutting on the asteroid, probably of the thorium itself. The hot flame of the torch could melt any known substance. The torch itself could melt in unskilled hands. The next case yielded a set of astrogation instruments, carefully cradled in a soft, rubbery plastic. Rip left them in the case and put them to one side. As he did so, Sergeant Major Coa let out a whistle of surprise. "'Lieutenant, look at this!' Corporal Santos exclaimed, "'Well, stonker me for a stupid space-quid. Do they expect us to find any people on this asteroid?' The object was a portable rocket-launcher designed to fire light-attack rockets. It was a standard item of fighting equipment for the planeteers. "'I recognize the shape of those cases over there now,' Coa said. Ten racks of rockets for the launcher, one rack to a case.' Rip scratched his head. He was as puzzled as Santos. Why supply fighting equipment for a crew on an asteroid that couldn't possibly have any living thing on it? He left the puzzle for the future and called for more cases. The next two yielded projectile-type handguns for ten men, with ammunition, and standard planetier space knives. The space knives had hidden blades, which were driven forth violently when the operator pushed a thumb-lever releasing the gas in a cartridge contained in the handle. The blade snapped forth with enough force to break a bubble or to cut through a spacesuit. They were designed for the sole purpose of space hand-to-hand -hand combat. The planeteers looked at each other. What were they up against that such equipment was needed on a barren asteroid? Private Doust opened a box that contained a complete toolkit, the tools designed to be handled by men in spacesuits. Yards of wire, for several purposes, were wound on reels. Two hand-driven dynamos capable of developing great power were included. Corporal Peterson found a small case which contained books, the latest astronomical data sheets and a space computer and scratchboard. These were obviously for Rip's personal use. He examined them. There were all the references he would need for computing orbit, speed, and just about anything else that might be required. He had to admire the thoroughness of whoever had written the order. The unknown planeteer had assumed that the space cruiser would not have all the astrophysics references necessary, and had included a copy of each. Several large cases remained. Koa ripped the side from one and let out an exclamation. 
Rip hurried over and looked in. His stomach did a quick orbital reverse. Great cosmos! The thing was an atomic bomb! Commander O'Brien leaned over his shoulder and peered at the lettering on the cylinder. Equivalent, 10 KT. In other words, the explosion the harmless-looking cylinder could produce was equivalent to 10,000 tons of TNT, a chemical explosive no longer in actual use but still used for comparison. Rip asked huskily, Any more of those things? The importance of the job was becoming increasingly clear to him. Nuclear explosives were not used without good reason. The fissionable material was too valuable for other purposes. The sides came off the remaining cases. Some of them held fat tubes of conventional rocket fuel in solid form, the igniters carefully packed separately. There were three other atomic bombs, making four in all. There were two bombs each of 5 kT and 10 kT. Commander O'Brien looked at the amazing assortment of stuff. Does that check, clerk? The spaceman nodded. Yes, sir. I found another notation that says food supplies and personal equipment to be supplied by the Scorpius. Well, vac me for a Venusian rabbit, O'Brien muttered. He tugged at his ear. You could dump me on that asteroid with this assortment of junk, and I'd spend the rest of my life there. I don't see how you can use this stuff to move an asteroid. Maybe that's why the Federation sent planeteers, Rip said, and was sorry the moment the words were out. O'Brien's jaw muscles bulged, but he held his temper. I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that, Foster. We have to get along until the asteroid is safely in an orbit around Earth. After that, I'm going to take a great deal of pleasure in feeding you to the space-fish, piece by piece." It was Rip's turn to get red. "'I'm sorry, Commander. Accept my apologies.' He certainly had a lot to learn about space etiquette. Apparently, there was a time for spacemen and planeteers to fight each other, and a time for them to cooperate like friends. He hoped he'd catch on after a while. I'm sure you'll be able to figure out what to do with this stuff, O'Brien said. If you need help, let me know. And Rip knew his apology was accepted. The deputy commander arrived, drew O'Brien aside, and whispered in his ear. The commander let out an exclamation and started out of the room. At the door he turned. Better come along, Foster. Rip followed as the commander led the way to his own quarters. At the door, Two space officers were waiting, their faces grave. O'Brien motioned them to chairs. All right, let's have it. The senior space officer held out a sheet of flimsy. It was pale blue, the color used for highly confidential documents. Sir, this came in Space Council special cipher. Read it aloud, O'Brien ordered. Yes, sir. It's addressed to you, this ship, from Planeteer Intelligence, Marsport. Consop's cruiser departed general direction your area. Agents report crew Altair may have leaked data re-asteroid. Take appropriate action. It's signed Williams SOS Commanding. Rip saw the meaning of the message instantly. The consolidation of people's governments of Earth, traditional enemies and rivals of the Federation of Free Governments, needed radioactive minerals as badly as, or worse than, the Federation. 
In space, it was first come, first take. They had to find the asteroid quickly. It was to prevent consops from knowing of the asteroid that security measures had been taken. They hadn't worked because of loose space chatter at Marsport. O'Brien issued quick orders. Now get this. We have to work fast. Accelerate fifty percent. Same course. I want two men on each screen. If anything of the right size shows up, decelerate until we can get mass and albedo measurements. Snap to it. The space officers started out, but O'Brien stopped them. Use one long-range screen for scanning high space toward Mars. Let me know the minute you get a blip, because it probably will be the Consop's cruiser. Have the missile parts cleared for action. Rip's eyes opened. Clear the missile ports? That meant getting the cruiser in fighting shape, ready for instant action. You wouldn't fire on that Consop's cruiser, would you, sir? O'Brien gave him a grim smile. Certainly not, Foster. It's against orders to start anything with Consop's cruisers. You know why. The situation is so tense that a fight between two spaceships might plunge Earth into war. His smile got even grimmer. But you never know. The Consop's ship might fire first, or an accident might happen. The commander leaned forward. We'll find that asteroid for you, Mr. Planeteer. We'll put you on it and see you on your way. Then we'll ride space along with you, and if any Consop's thieves try to take over and collect that thorium for themselves, they'll find Kevin O'Brien waiting. That's a promise." Rip felt a lot better. He sat back in his chair and regarded the commander with mixed respect and something else. Against his will, he was beginning to like the man. No doubt of it, the Scorpius was well named and the sting in the scorpion's tail was O'Brien himself. End of chapter 4